It's a history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Fellow Australians, it is my melancholy duty to inform you, officially, that in consequence of a persistence by Germany in her invasion of Poland, Great Britain has declared war upon her, and that as a result, Australia is also at war. Welcome to a special episode of the Kick to Kick podcast. Mm. Um, we are here today across the next three episodes actually to talk about World War II uh, and the VFL players and how they were involved and how, how it affected them. Yeah, so um, uh, as we said, we've, we've spoken a little bit over the, the seasons that have been affected by uh, World War II, a little bit about that, but we thought it was it's always good to go into a bit more depth with it, and we did that and with World War One. haven't we gone into depth? Well, yeah, exactly, and we've, we've spoken to some really interesting people who've written some books or played during those times. We've got some great interviews and so much fantastic information that we originally thought it'd only be two episodes, but it's it's blown out to three. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so enjoy. Have yeah. a listen to uh, what we've put together. Um, now, Moz is going to give us some stats on the war to begin with. So in 1939, at the start of the war, the Australian population um, had around 7 million men and about 10% of that served in World War II. Um, as a lot of you know, the war went from 1939 until 1945. 691,000 men and 35,800 women enlisted in the Australian military forces. 45,000 men and 3,100 women enlisted in the Royal Australian Navy. 189,000 men and 27,000 women enlisted in the Royal Australian Air Force. The deaths, the Australian deaths from all services uh, was about 0.5%, which was 35,000 people and about 66,000 wounded, um, again, across all the services. Um, Now, the prisoners of war stats actually shocked me a bit. Um, There were 7,289 prisoners of war against, in the war against Germany, of whom 234 died while they were captive, which was 3.22% of the men who were captured. Comparatively, in the war against Japan, there were 22,000 prisoners of war, of whom 8,031 died while captive, which is 36% of the prisoners of war in Japan. Um, Huge number. In Australia during the war, or during the wars, thrift was encouraged. There were restrictions on everyday items. Petrol rationing was introduced in 1940. And while rationing of clothing and food, oh, there was also rationing of clothing, food, including meat, butter, tea, sugar, and that began in, from May 1942. By early 1943, 184,000 civilian women were employed in direct war work. In addition to that, 70,000 70, women enlisted in the services, with 3,500 serving as nurses. As far as we know at the moment, there were 103 players who served in both World War I and World War II. 
And just to add on to those statistics as well, there's five players who served in three wars. So the Boer War, World War One, World War Two. I think in our World War One episode, we actually said there was three, but there's there's actually five. So we've got Alex Johnson of Carlton and Richmond, Herbert Kennedy of St Kilda, Bertram Lowell of Fitzroy, Charles Meadway of Carlton and Collingwood, and Alexander Wallace of St Kilda and South Melbourne. Those players served in three wars. What an outstanding amount of service for our country. Cool. So let's start by talking about people's um, attitudes towards the war. Attitude to being played during the war. Yeah, because if you remember uh, World War One, there was quite a bit of kickback to the league playing football during the time of war. Yeah. But this wasn't so much the case in World War Two. Now, this might be because the Prime Minister at the time, Robert Menzies, was a Carlton supporter and maybe he thought Carlton were closer to a flag or a chance to win a flag. <laughs> he was a huge, yeah, he was a huge fan. But he argued that home front sports served their useful purpose. Football offered the chance to raise money for patriotic funds and war bonds, and was also uh, had a useful psychological and social benefits. There were similar arguments during World War One as well, weren't there? But yeah. just not as not as strongly backed by the prime minister at the time. And then the, and then um, uh, who took over from Menzies? Um, it was Curtin. Curtin was also a fan, but just not as big a fan, and he sort of just kept that ball rolling. Yeah, you're right mm. there, Charlie. Um, now, Dr. McClellan, league president. Legend. Yeah, also argued that thrilling contests between league clubs furnished entertainment for citizens that was so necessary to maintain morale at a high level. Well, yeah, and you think about what's going on at the moment. Imagine how much easier it would be to be in isolation if we were able to watch the footy. Oh, the dream. The absolute dream. And and the point that they make about it being able to raise money is so true. We've talked about the lightning premierships that they've had in the past, games um, before and after the season where it's been like representative teams playing the best of the rest and um, they've all raised plenty of cash, which probably wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Also, in the season we just talked about, was it 40? Yeah, 42. 42. Both captains, both captains came out, Dick Reynolds and um, Jack Dyer, before the game and talked about how important it was for their, everyone to be buying war bonds and really, really pushing it. It's a, when you don't have you know, the ability to, to spread information the way we do these days, footy would have been a an, an very good soapbox to have. Mm. Uh, I've got a quote here from the Hawthorne president, Dr. Jonah, who said, football should go on because it provides mental rest for a large section of the community. Uh, it keeps a large number of men bodily and mentally fit, and it provides employment for many who are unable to undertake military service. I love that they talk so much about mental well-being even back then. Yeah, that's actually mm. a really good point, Moz. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't expect that. No. No, not at all. Yeah, it's a, yeah, very interesting. I think there was some stuff on the other side as well that we do need to sort of uh, mention about the fact that I can't think of the particulars at the moment, but there were a few players who were um, called essential service or said worked in essential places uh, even though they didn't. Well, necessarily didn't because uh, they wanted to keep them around to play footy. So there were yeah. a few a few things like that going on as well, um, which I think is important to mention. It wasn't all um, positive, I don't think, in terms of the VFL stuff. But it, they, people did come together and allow 
players to play or train with different clubs. And it was a very open and, and uh, reasonably honest thing of, you know, we want this competition to be as good as it possibly can in these trying times. So yeah. people sort of came together at this, didn't they? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Charlie. They supported each other the whole time, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all the clubs that were still, still around did. Yeah, I guess they needed that camaraderie compared to the rest of the world and the world stage at that time. Now, obviously, there are a lot of VFL players who fought and served for their country during World War II, and we're not going to be able to talk about every single one individually, although we'll try and mention as many as we can. There are quite a few notable players who volunteered and served, um, really setting an example for the rest of the country and you know, specifically Melbourne, Victoria, this being the VFL. Um, so we might go through some of those players who served. Moz, do you want to start off with some Brownlow medalists? I'd love to. Um, so Richmond's James Morris, he won the 1948 Brownlow medals upon arriving home and he was part of the Australian Field Artillery Training Regiment. Yep. Um, Chicken Smallhorn of Fitzroy. Oh, one of your favourites, Miles. Fave Chicken. Uh, he was a corporal in, and now I don't know how to pronounce the actual uh, military uh, numerals, 2 slash 4 Australian Regiment. How would I say that? Yeah, the 2nd, 4th. 2nd, 4th, I'm pretty sure. Okay, the 2nd, 4th Australian Regiment um, of the Motor Transport Company. Thank you, Charlie. And then... Oh, I'm not sure if that's right. That's just a guess. Look, and we'll hear more about Chicken Smallhorn and his involvement in the war later on in our second episode, especially at the Chengi uh, prison. Yeah, that, yeah, huge. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Footscray's Norm Ware. He was a private in the second first Australian General Hospital. I've, I've all worn Smith of Melbourne. He was a major 1A in the core petrol park. I'm not quite sure what that means. Dual Brownlow medalist there, Moles, as well, for Melbourne in the uh, in the 20s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Marcus Whelan of Collingwood. He was Sergeant 140 in the anti-aircraft battery. And finally, Hayden Bunton, the three-time <laughs> Brownlow winner of Fitzroy, was a corporal in the 5th Motor Ambulance Convoy. So Yes, yeah, yeah. so there's some big names. Big names. Yeah. Um, so some players I looked at are John Baggett, who was a Richmond and Essendon player and then went on to coach South Melbourne and Essendon. Uh, we've got Alan Hurd, who was obviously James Hurd's grandfather. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Fonz Kine, uh, Collingwood captain, Copeland Trophy winner. LB Panham, also a Collingwood legend there. Um, and then I've got a few members of Collingwood's machine team from the, the late 20s. Uh, Albert Collier, who was an aircraft hand. Harry Collier. Uh, we've got George Clayton, leading aircraftman. Jack Beveridge, who was a private. Albert Lauder. Um, Harold Rumney who was on the HMAS Lonsdale. We've got Percy Boyer and finally Horry Edmonds. So quite a lot of uh, Collingwood machine members serving as well. Wow, that's massive. Um, so uh, under that, we've got a few. Surprisingly, I'm going to talk about Melbourne players now. Uh, so there's a couple that you uh, you just mentioned. Uh, Bert Chadwick, who's a Melbourne Premiership player and at this this point, uh, um, head of the uh, MCC, 
Um, and his uh, son, Robert, also um, played for Melbourne. Uh, it was a, a wing commander. There was Ed Cordner, who was um, a, a surgeon, Lennon, uh, in the Navy. Um, Francis Hughes, who played for Richmond and Melbourne. Son of Checker Hughes, uh, who was in the 15 field, field ambulance. And Checker Hughes served himself, didn't he? Checker as well, yeah. In the First World War? In the first world. Yeah. Yeah, in World War I, yeah. Um, Alan LaFontaine, captain of Melbourne, uh, was a private and flying officer in the um, anti-tank regiment. Um, Jack, John Jack Mueller, uh, who actually was initially rejected because he was missing those fingers, Moz. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he eventually got in a, and he was um, a corporal uh, in Mount Isa. If you can play football, you can serve in the army, surely. Can you shoot a gun, though, without those fingers? Mm, oh yeah. As long as you got your trigger finger, you're all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hard to shoot a gun with your pinky. True. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last one I wanted to mention was um, Ambrose Palmer, who we talked a little bit about, who was the Footscray player, who was also the boxing champion, who got in a, a couple of tussles with Jack Dyer, didn't you? Yeah, one or two, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was a private uh, in the second training battalion and uh, suffered from um, PTSD, unfortunately. So, you know, the, yeah, as Timmy said, there were plenty of others, but the, those are a few um, very famous names that popped out. Yeah, great. Um, Kazman, you got some for us as well. And uh, for me, goal-kicking legends, Laurie Nash. Um, he went AWOL a few times. He was medically classed as having arthritis in his knees. I don't, I don't know what to read into that. Um, he went AWOL right. around a few times as well, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, this, on the South Melbourne um, uh, thing, we've got Bob Pratt, six months in the Pacific, was stationed in far north Queensland as he, um, he played games of football up there as well. Why wouldn't he? Uh, Ron Todd, um, uh, obviously from Collingwood, leading aircraftman, 15 field ambulance. Did I say that right as well? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, um, it was at the ambulance HQ uh, D post. And we've got Claude Curtin from Fitzroy, nephew of the PM. Um, so he didn't escape. Corporal, two Australian lines of communication postal unit. Um, and uh, also uh, we've got Dan Murray. Now we didn't talk about his, um, his debut, but I don't, I don't know, but I've, I must've missed that there somewhere. But um, No, we have, we have spoken about it, Kaz. We, we did. Okay. Yeah. About 10 episodes ago, I think. <laughs> well, just in case, go back and listen, Dan Murray. Always. Um, um, notably a uh, great, great player, but um, also um, was the father of um, the famous Kevin Murray, team of the century. Um, and, but his dad, Dan Murray, leading aircraftman. Nice, Kaz. Now, I just want to say, I think yeah. it's so important that uh, these leading footballers provided that example for the rest of the community and volunteered and put their hands up and yeah. really, you know, served no, like everyone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's a really strong example. And you look at, you look at um, those guys, it's quite interesting to note that a lot of the people that we just mentioned and talked about were um, in the either in the medical um, uh, leagues or in in the air force as well. I think it it, show, it shows um I don't know it shows that there were so many different things going on you know during the war. It, it, everyone had a had a role to play and found a place that seemed to fit 
who they were as people as well. Now, Charlie, one thing we love on this show is anecdotes. Always. Um, let's. I, I thought. I thought we could find, we could uh, share some stories that we found about different players and their involvement with the war or football's yeah. link to the war. Perfect. I might start with Bruce Andrew, Collingwood player. Um, he was captain of the Air Force Aussie Rules team in 1944, and he actually asked if he could play a game in Lords, maybe inspired by the 1916 game. I'm not sure. Um, so he went to Lords and asked, and they said, Phew. "Yeah." He said they they told him the only crickets played here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, they then organised the game down in Brighton, and they arrived in Brighton to find the whole centre square was marked off, and they couldn't, you know, couldn't go on the cricket pitch. So they had to play around the centre. Yeah. I'm going to take there. this up with the commander because wasn't it the commander <laughs> who was the, the head coach or something like that last yeah, time? Quite possibly. Um, so then we had Wembley, <laughs> White City, Tottenham, Chelsea, and Arsenal all offer their grounds, um, but they were too small. I mean, we know we can't play football on a soccer pitch; it's just not the right size. No. Um, so they actually moved this game to Hyde Park. Now Hyde Park was where all the rubble from the Blitz was kind of stored. They'd they they dump it all in Hyde Park. So the Anzacs. There, they moved all the rubble aside and played a game of uh, Aussie Rules football in the middle of Hyde Park. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Then we've got the story of Alfred Kallick of South Melbourne. He joined at the age of 16 and spent five months in camp before his mother contacted authorities and had him discharged. Ooh, how embarrassing. (laughs) You do not want to tell any of your mates about that. No. (laughs) Um, uh, we got Fred Green of Essendon St Kilda, captain of the naval team and won the best and fairest in the ACT League while he was there on uh, uh, placement. Uh, William Campbell from North Melbourne served in New Guinea, returned safely and died in 2005, aged 102. Wow. One of only four league players to reach the age of 100. So that's pretty damn impressive. It's amazing considering what, what they went through and what their bodies went through that these guys even got close to those sorts of ages. Yeah, that insane trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we've got William Plunkett of Geelong. He served in the Middle East and New Guinea. And urban legend has it um, he was once hiding behind a tree from a Japanese patrol and realised he was sitting on a booby trap or a mine. Um, But because of all the weight loss he'd suffered during the war and and, uh, being a lot skinnier, it didn't actually go off. You're joking. Yeah. Surely not. Yeah, um, so he survived that. And then during his second tour, he was shot in the hand and the buttocks in New Guinea uh, and had a few fingers amputated as well. Like Forrest Gump. Alan Pollock of Footscray served on Bougainville Island. Uh, He was known to have a cracked a rib in a regimental football game in 1942. I'm sure sure his commanding officers weren't too uh, happy with that football injury. Yeah, no. Uh, Teddy Rank, oh, Edward Rankin, who was half brother of Cliff, who uh, who had served in World War One. We know the Rankin family. Uh, Alfred Sampson of Footscray, a member of the RAF. He was part of a force that brought home liberated Allied POWs. Uh, he played in that aforementioned RAF game, I think, in London with Bruce Andrew. And then we got Paul Bell of St Kilda, who would brag to his mates that when playing for St Kilda, he played alongside the great Billy Moore. <laughs> But it'd be, yeah, it'd be something that definitely would get a hell of a lot of talking uh, when you've got nothing to do sitting in, you know, sitting there waiting to fight or sitting in the trenches or wherever you were. 
I played in the VFL. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, you think about it. We spend so much of our time at work talking about football. Of course, when you're serving overseas, you're going to talk a lot about football. I, I guarantee you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It just it, like you say for the people who are still at home, it keeps you going. For the guys over there, I'm sure that it kept them going as well, hearing about what was happening at home with their teams and and those sorts of things. Um, so a few other stories stories were um so there was Archibald Baxter who played for South um and went back to them after the war in, in 44. Um he started to mark the ball with his left hand as a wound to his right shoulder during the war meant he couldn't mark with his right anymore. Mm, so compensating. Um yeah. Yeah, so he's yeah, on the other way. Um Keith Drinian from St Kilda um was spotted playing footy by uh in Darwin, by the Saints coach, uh, Fred Green, and signed to the club as soon as he returned from duties in 46. And that's actually something we'll get to when we listen to the Jack Jones interview in episode three. You know, people were still recruiting. People had their eyes open on all these players during the wartime. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, just like Tim mentioned before, um, while on uh, leave, one of South's players, Llewellyn Frost, was injured during one of one, a service game, so I can't imagine his superiors would have been too happy about that. Um, Basil Hunter from Carlton, who uh, served in New Guinea, um, he was wounded in the hand and the buttocks, um, and he was then posted to Bougainville where he damaged his ankle while playing footy there. So there's a few footy injuries going on yeah. during the war as well. Oh, do, you, do you think they tried to hide all these um, injuries from their commanding officers? Surely. Surely. You can't imagine it would have gone over well. Yeah. Um, Ken McLean from Carlton got in trouble with the authorities in uh, 42 when he was found asleep at his guard post and lost 14 days of his pay. <laughs> um, he served in Ley and New Britain uh, in 45. And he, was in, he wasn't punished despite technically being AWOL in 46 to play in Carlton's opening round match. So that's nice. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that in the 46 episode. Yeah. Um, Rendell Holton from Collingwood uh, was a flying instructor and a test pilot for the RAAF. And in 1969, so a long time later, uh, he introduced uh, the bill to abolish discrimination in benefits for Indigenous Australians. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. That is brilliant. Yeah, I'm glad he survived. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Will O'Brien, who played for South Melbourne, served in Darwin during the bombings. And then two years later in New Guinea and New Britain, um, he is the grandfather of Jared and Greg Healy. There you go. And, and the last one for me, uh, Henry White from St Kilda flew in the same squadron as uh, Keith Bluey Truscott, who the Melbourne Best and Fairest is named after and who uh, was obviously a very excellent pilot and died during the war. Okay, so legend had it that when Sid Coventry received a telegram from the army about his sons, Hugh and Jack, that he refused to open it for over an hour. It was all good, though, except for Jack um, had endured an eye problem after a horrific plane crash. But they were both alive. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine though, just receiving a telegram during those times? Like, I can't imagine. No, it's so just horrendous. My imagination. Yeah. I hope we never have to imagine anything like that. No. No. Yeah. Um, Fred Flanagan was serving on Kokoda and he saw he- heavy action at Bougainville. 
He was supposed to go to Japan, but when his mad cat supporter Colonel found out he wanted to play footy for Geelong, his Colonel ensured Flanagan returned to Melbourne where he attended officers training and played footy for Geelong. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping there'd be a story like that. Um, Robert Hancock of St Kilda fudged his age to enlist. He was stationed on the HMAT West Australia Troop Laden Ship in Manila, or HMAS. Um, a Japanese dive bombing pilot headed for it. Hancock stayed at his post firing at the plane until it crashed into the sea. Oh, wow. Hectic stuff. Um, oh, this is a really nice one. Harold Compte of St Kilda took a scoop of soil from Junction Oval with him to war in the islands. Oh. Just to have it with him. Yeah. If you were gonna t- if you were gonna take it from somewhere, junction to the best place, best oval going around. <laughs> <laughs> and my final one, uh, Geelong's William Lamb was involved in eighty nine strikes and attacks as a navigator in the hundredth squadron, and eight with the sixth squadron. Eighty nine wow. strikes and attacks. Ooh. Wow. Imagine that becoming your norm. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, here comes another one. <laughs> 89. Kazman, you got your list there? Yep, we got Terry Cushion accidentally died. Excuse me. <laughs> Why did I say that? Accidentally injured his knee playing football while on duty in Cairns in 1944. Going, um, before going to Balak, how do you say this? Balak Papan? Like Papan. Serve, that's it. Um, James Crow coached Footscray the year after being discharged. Um, so he must have played for Carlton Collingwood. His 36 premiership medal sold for $19,000 in 2013. Anyway, I've got, I'm glad I've got this one. Frank Curcio, probably pronounced like, um, for Fitzroy. Um, a musician as well. Uh, broke three fingers in the, double, the RAAF team, game, uh, which ended his music career. And if you remember, Frank Cuccio actually told opponents, you know, you can hit my face, but but just leave my hands alone. I'm, I'm a, I play music. Yeah, don't touch my fingers, exactly. Because yeah. oh. he actually went and played. He, he took a year and played in the symphony orchestra, Moz. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so sad. Um, maybe one little good thing was he was named in the Italian team of the century. Hmm. Um, Bert Deacon, Carlton. Uh, trained and served in the Northern Territory. And he said he learned most of his football from playing in the Army. So oh, wow. We're glad that he kept up his playing. Okay, Harry Lauder enlisted twice. This is the, he's the keenest guy ever, this guy. Um, both times he lowered his age. Yeah. So what, he, he said he was younger uh, than he was. That's, that's the opposite of what usually happens. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Harry. Um, uh, so, Will- William Lowenthal um, captained the RAAF football team at one stage. Uh, he played Fessenden and Fitzroy. Ah. Um, Kenneth Sire, is that how you say that? Or I think so, yeah. Um, for Fitzroy and Richmond. Uh, won both the best and fairest for the RAAF football competition in 1944. And James Thomas for Footscray in the RAAF team. Um, his file states, uh, he is an outstanding sportsman and as such inspires confidence from all the ranks. Imagine if you're on the like same it. 
a team as him when you're in on the front. That that is that is true. I reckon. St Kilda's Keith Miller. Now, I've been hearing stories about Keith Miller since I was a kid, and if you've listened to previous episodes, you may have heard me say that it's been an ongoing joke in my family that my grandma has always been obsessed with Keith Miller. And you are, well, I guess what I'm about to say is a bit of evidence that he was quite the ladies' man. So, a bit of background on Keith. Keith was an excellent cricketer and footballer. He played for St Kilda Footy Club. Um, He was in England with the RAAF and he accepted to play cricket at Dulwich one fine day. Very sadly, after the game, he learned that a German bomb hit the bar which killed seven of his mates while he'd been playing the cricket. He always insisted that cricket saved his life. Now this is a quote from Miller about that situation. What is pressure in sport? Pressure is having a Messerschmitt up your ass at 20,000 feet. That's pressure. Now the ladies man, Keith Miller, there was always a rumor that Keith Miller and Princess Margaret were a bit of a power couple. He was a dashing Australian second, second World War fighter pilot turned all conquering all rounder. And she was the younger daughter of King George VI and younger sibling to the eventual Queen of England, Elizabeth II. Women absolutely loved Miller and he had a lot of time for them too. But his relationship with Margaret was built on more than just physical attraction. From 1948 onwards, whenever Miller was in England, the princess would seek out his company. Later on in his life, when asked about their association, Miller remarked, put it this way, we had a lot of fun. Great story there about Keith Miller. Moz. Um, now, last one I want to share is not about a footballer, but about a football, about Ernie Pilkington. He was a Tasmanian. He was from uh, Newtown, coached by Roy Gazzali. He was on the HMAS Vampire in 1942 when the Japanese attacked, uh, which sunk the boat. Uh, 300 Australians died. Um, now, Pilkington's body couldn't be found, and he did actually survive, later telling Blues officials it was only by clinging to an inflated Sharon football that for some time in the water he was able to survive. Um, and that he clung to a football and a wooden raft for six hours in the sea. Um, he was one of 600 men who were survived and then taken to Salon. So, yeah, guys, a, a football saved his life. <laughs> so oh. they, if they had a Sharon on board, fantastic. That's amazing. That's yeah, isn't it? Um, look, I'm not actually sure if it was a Sharon football. I was kind of just assuming that it was a Sharon. But, yeah, a football saved his oh, life. Okay. Yeah, so a pretty incredible story there, um, and I thought it was definitely worth sharing as part of this episode. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic phenomenal. anecdote, So a lot of those stories have actually come from Barb Cullen's book. It's called Harder Than Football, mm. uh, League Players at War. Very well researched, uh, a really great omnibus. We had a chat to her for our World War One special, if you remember, um, a few years ago. Uh, go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear more about uh, her book because it's a great read. Mm. Um, and we're still finding more players every day that have fought and served and, and died in the war. I think just last week, Rhett Bartlett was finding mm. a few new Richmond players who had fought and served or maybe played reserve. So, you know, it's, it's an ever-evolving mm. list. Yeah. Mm. That's yeah, so fantastic. Wow. Um, now, I think it's important we also go through a bit of a timeline, Charlie, about, you know, the, I guess, 
Yeah, how it all, where it began and how it all continued to move through during the wartime. Yeah. Um, So we'll we'll skip 1939 because it was a real building up period where Australia wasn't really too involved there. 1940 is when it really kicked off. So we'll we'll, uh, we'll cover the next five years, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, six years. Yeah. Great. Yeah, so um, in a, by April of 1940, uh, 60 of the VFL players who were playing at the time had signed up. Um, there was the Patriotic Premiership in 1940 as well, which 30,000 spectators went to watch and it raised £2,500 for the uh, war effort. Um, there was the Australian Imperial Force also game playing North Melbourne. Um, there was a, yeah, there was a lot of a, a lot of uh, interesting things going on. In a letter written by one soldier to the sport, Sporting Globe, the, uh, the soldier claimed that they discussed the game among themselves and felt it was good for morale back home for footy to continue. Um, but the money derived from attendance should be diverted in for some useful patriotic cause, and players should not be paid. So similar to what we were talking about in World War One, you know, the soldiers, it's good for the morale to have something to talk about. But as he said, um, and I know they were playing lots of great games, but uh, it's important that a lot of the money was going to the cause. Yeah, and at, at this stage of the war as well, it's still mostly based in Europe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 1941, Moz. All right, 1941. Geelong were forced to move from Corio Oval to Cardinia Park because of the army taking over the barracks. And Collingwood won their second patriotic premiership. Yep. Uh, the first league captain signed up with North's Len Thomas saying, well, a man can't, just can't be out of a thing like this. Uh, Melbourne's Harold Ball and Fitzroy's Chicken Smallhorn were photographed shaking hands between a game between services in Malaya. This was a game between the RAAF and the field ambulance. I love how we always refer to him as Chicken Smallhorn. He's never his, never his first name. Yeah, I don't even remember his real name. I think it's Wilfred. <laughs> yeah, it sounds familiar. Or, <laughs> yeah, little chick. Um, a report from the Western, a report from the Western Desert in the Middle East suggested that the first AIF assault in Libya commenced on the signal of a football being kicked into no man's land. How good's that? Waste of a football, though. So good. (laughs) Uh, On the 20th of July, 1941, a charity match was played between a bookmaker's team, Jack Dyer's Victorian side, and the RACV team at Victoria Park. Jack Titus lined up with the RACV against Dyer and Dick Harris. Yeah, interesting that he's against his his teammates from Richmond. Mm. Uh, In North Africa... Head correspondent John Hetherington saw the phrase up there, Kazali, chalked on a shell-torn wall at Solemn in the Western Desert. Yeah, how's that? And in October, ABC war correspondent Chester Wilmot even heard a Scottish aircraft gunner yelling up there, Kazali, during the siege of Tobruk. And then very uh, sadly, Ron Barassi Sr. was killed in action as well in 1941. Yeah, I think he was the first, the first league player who passed away. And Charlie will talk a bit more about that later on. Mm-hmm. And um, one more thing. There was a charity match played on the 14th of September. 
for with both past and present players versus bookmakers. Thanks, Moz. All right, moving on to 1942. So this is the year that the ground started to be taken over by the Air Force, including Junction Oval, Lakeside Oval, Western Oval and the MCG. Um, from April to October 1942, the US Army's 5th Air Force occupied the MCG and it was known as Camp Murphy, named in honour of Officer Colonel William Murphy, a senior US AAF officer killed in Java. Uh, in March of 1942, John Curtin said that big football was undesirable in the midst of a world crisis. Football should continue on the basis of community fitness, but war should come before all other considerations, and recreation must be for the purpose of promoting fitness for war work. On March 29th, Carlton played Richmond in a patriotic match to raise money, and then again in May they played Fitzroy. I think that might have been Hayden Bunton's comeback game. Uh, 15,000 mm-hmm. fans coming to watch and more than £700 raised. In July, Richmond then played a combined services team. Now, going overseas, in Egypt, uh, it was known that two RAAF teams had an ongoing competition playing in the sand there, which must have been quite hard. In Darwin, teams played in full battle dress in jungle clearings. Uh, The playing area was ringed by supporters in steel helmets and the goal umpires used rifles for flags. The only obstacle was finding the ball if it went over the boundary line and into the eight feet high grass. Now, Bill Cosgrove, who we'll talk about later in the uh, third episode, named his fighter planes after Jack Dyer. I think he had Jack Dyer 1, Jack Dyer 2, etc. Um, and on those was also painted uh, Eat Him Alive, the, the tiger's famous battle cry there. And and finally, uh, there were two more patriotic games played. Uh, the defending champions, Essendon, actually took on a combined services team the week after they beat Richmond for the flag. That was to raise money for Lady Duggan's Hostels for Women Fund. Um, and that team Essendon played included players like Mueller, LaFontaine, Bob Pratt, Ron Todd, uh, Laurie Nash, Frank Curcio, Norm Ware and Albie Panham. So quite a star-studded team that the Bombers were still able to beat. And then finally, Richmond played sale mm. in – sorry, played – the RAAF in sale for the Football AIDS War Fund. Um, and this game, the Tigers won, and in that game, £200 were raised. So Tigers really doing a great job there of raising money um, for everyone. Uh, yeah, so uh, moving on to 1943, um, the, uh, this was the year that, as we said, the MCG got taken over by the American forces. So a lot of the grounds were starting to be taken over. Um, and most famously in 43, the MCG was home to the first regiment of the first division of the US Marines, which if anyone's watched um, the Pacific, the Steven Spielberg uh, series, which is a few years old now, that one of the episodes shows quite a lot of that, which is quite interesting in all those Marines in Melbourne starting fights and doing, you know, just enjoying the fact that they weren't fighting, I think. Wow. Um, uh, that on March 14th, the Marines hosted a giant get-together of the US and Australian troops on the MCG. Um, there were also uh, reports of soldiers playing games on, on Sunday mornings, which is, which is great. And I think, uh, is this when um, Ostus started getting played, Tim? Uh, yeah, it's later on in that year, but yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, um, uh, there was also some games at um, Starlag 383, which is near Nuremberg. Um, 500 Australians uh, played football and formed a league there, 
with uh, four teams called the Emus, the Kangaroos, the Kookaburras and the Wallabies. And they even had uh, two reserve teams, the Snakes and the Goannas. Nice, um, like the Camp Taylor's dyed army T-shirts in red, yellow, blue and white. The games were played on a um, 200 square um, parade ground and tackling was banned because of the hard ground. Um, the winning team, um, which ended up being the Kangaroos, led by Johnny Wakeman, had a shield and they won six out of the nine games. So the, the latter was the Kangaroos on top, winning six, losing three. The Emus um, and the Wallabies having a um, the same record of four wins, one draw and three losses. And the Kookaburras uh, winning three and losing six. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Um, in a, a late May, they also staged a state of origin game, which is the Western States versus the Eastern States. Yeah, and the Taylors it. even managed to get a swan on the West shorts and a big V on the Victorians shirts. So good. Um, uh, unfortunately, though, the Wests won by a point, 68-67. Um, there were a few other games as well. Um, Jack Pym, who uh, played for Collingwood in the and was part of the 58th and 59th Battalion, uh, recounted that they played games on the airstrip in Bougainville um, as well. On the 3rd of April, there was an All-American Sports Day held at Punt Road which involved a bit of baseball, which we know used to uh, actually open a few of the VFL games and also some gridiron matches and also a kicking and passing challenge between Australia and America. Um, The kicking team was uh, Jack Mueller from Melbourne, Wally Buttsworth from Essendon, Jack Graham from South and Skinny Titus from Richmond. And the passing team was Jack Dyer from Richmond, um, Hugh Tomey from Essendon, Jack Graham from South and Jack Mueller from Melbourne. So Mueller get, got a run on both teams. Yeah, well, he's good enough. Um, on <laughs> the 20th of July, there was an Army versus Air Force game at Punt Road. Yeah. And on the uh, 15th of August, uh, there was a combined services versus central services team. Uh, the Bluey Truscott Memorial and uh, Richmond Prisoner of War Funds uh, benefited at the match uh, from Rich, at Richmond on Sunday between the teams representing the combined services, which was the Navy, Army and Air Force, against the essential services of police, fire brigade, railways, tramways, munitions and engineering. Great. Um, so as I mentioned before, there was a, there was a game called Ostis. Yeah, well, so interesting. That was, um, that was started um, and it was originated... Yeah, due to World War Two, there's there's a fantastic brochure that Timmy found with a guy uh, on the front holding the ball like a gridiron. Um, it's it's yeah, it's classic. But so what it basically was was um, because of the American servicemen, they were in Australia um, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor to fight in the Pacific. Um, they were looking for some common ground and things to do with the Australian soldiers and the, and the population in general. And um, yeah, apparently there was a bit of. Um like trouble between the soldier of Australia, Australian soldiers and American soldiers. There's a few fights in the streets as well. Um, so they wanted something to kind of occupy them. They wanted a common ground of sport that would kind of combine and bring them together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not surprised. Like, yeah, they, they were all on top of each other. They'd been sort of on ships or fighting for quite a while. So they sort of got to, got to Melbourne and 
uh, were a bit all over the place. And I think a lot of the a lot of the Aussie guys sort of didn't like their women being chased by American men. So it yeah. may, may have got them back on the same page. Um, but it was, uh, yes, yeah, so it was an interesting game. Um, they sort of combined Gridiron and AFL um, and had a few local exhi- exhibition games to help support the charities. Um, so the first game was they just played AFL and the Americans were beaten terribly. Yeah. Um, so Ern Cowley, who was a journalist with the Sporting Globe, came up with the idea to amalgamate the two games. Um, so how it basically worked was balls were um, uh, balls were allowed to be marked after catching a forward pass. Um, so you were allowed to throw the ball. You were also allowed to kick the ball. But the the throw from the throw it counted as a mark. Um, the Aussies just continued basically play it the way they always had and basically continued to play AFL. But the Americans used, you know, their gridiron skills and were extremely accurate with their with their throwing. There's actually footage of this on YouTube as well. Yeah. The game. Yeah. Which is, it, it's really interesting to watch. And I'm sure it would have been quite a spectacle at the time. Absolutely. Even now. If that was, if that was played now, I'd go and watch it. Me too. <laughs> So 1944. So, guys, uh, excuse me. So, everyone, during a match between the Royal Australian Air Force teams in London, uh, the cry of up there, Kazali, was heard from the barracking airmen. Now, that has been something we've been looking at over quite a few years. Um, Games in Madang, I hope I said that right, on a patch of cleared land, um, Lieutenant Colonel Cusworth uh, ordered his troops to cut down some trees to make a bit of an oval. And uh, I don't know, I, I pulled a tree root out the other day. This would have been some challenge. So they, so they could have had, and so they did this um, so they could have something to do in their downtime. They named the oval Deslin's Oval. I hope I said that right. Yep. Uh, to commemorate um, Corporal, Corporal, sorry. I, and I looked at this acronym ROT. I don't know what that stands for. Um, to to commemorate Corporal Desland and his um, uh, achievements. The match included the uh, Unit 29 of the 46th Battalion taking on Unit 2 of the 14th Field Regiments. And I don't know if this is right, but the entire of 152nd Australian General Transport Company. That seems like quite a lot there. Mm. Um, So they beat the team from Darwin, all these people. Uh, wearing their now, this is one of my favourite parts. Wearing their cut-off jungle greens and army boots with stops in them. <laughs> so, isn't that something from Apocalypse Now? Um, <laughs> they beat the team led by the demons' defender Wally Lock. Ah, oh, such a sweet now. Um, eventually, seventeen comp was set up within the 29th of, uh, twenty unit twenty nine of forty sixth battalion. So, seven team. Oh, we're just coming out of action. And uh, we were having a bit of a leisure time and the old uh, CO, Colonel Cuthworth, thought we wanted a bit of a activity, so he got us cutting his kunai grass to make a footy ground. That was a madang. And uh, anyhow, he worked away there for, oh, it didn't take long, a couple of days, I suppose, just cleaned it up and uh, we cut it pretty low to the ground, only about an inch or two. It was pretty muddy. But the grass used to sort of bind the 
find the surface together and uh, no, it was all right. Yeah. Then we uh, got into it. The first mob we ch uh, challenged us was a, they come from uh, Darwin, I think, they were an artillery mob and they hadn't been beaten. They come trotting out in their footy gear and football boots and jumpers and knickers and everything and we come trotting out with their cut-off jungle green trousers and singlets <laughs> and army boots with stops in them. <laughs> Anyhow, we, we stitched them up. We had a very good team. No, I, I don't know how they go against a league team, but they were to push some of them. Yeah, they're pretty good. Wally Lock from Melbourne. Uh, Alan McDonald from Richmond. Uh, Arthur Hart, Fitzroy. No, they had a pretty fair team. Like I said, I only played a few matches and then I sprained my ankle and pulled back for the battalion and uh, pulled forward with the company. So, Tim, on the 9th of July, EG versus the RAAF raised £2,000. So it's a win-win for everybody. We've got people getting getting some time off. People get to see the game and the, the little bit of money that's left over goes to a good cause. In 1945, a lunchtime rally in Spencer Street before the commencement of the 45 season raised £2,500 for the fourth victory loan. After a number of VFL players addressed the crowd, uh, Laurie Nash raised an additional £100 by taking up a challenge to sing to the crowd. A special commemorative service for the late President Roosevelt and footballers who had fallen during the war preceded the opening day of play on League Wounds Day. Uh, crowds stood before uh, bareheaded while players and umpires formed a V uh, for a one-minute silence, followed by the sounding of the last post. As prisoners of war were released, many of them sending letters to loved ones, uh, questions home included how their teams were going in the league. So no matter how tough times were, they still wanted to know how their football team was going, which is amazing. Uh, so to end the episode, we thought we'd just use a little extract from the uh, football record, which was, I think this was released in 1940, I, I might be wrong. Uh, but this was just written in the football record to yeah. kind of sum up what was happening. So uh, this is it. The season is ending. Soon we will put the ball away. But there is another game on and you know it. It is grim and bitter. It has no seasons. Our opponents know no rules. And there is no umpire but our own consciences. Also, there are no spectators. And there can be no passengers. We must win this game or lose everything. If we work as a team, we can cut out all unnecessary spending, ease up on liquor, cut down on the bets, and buy only those things that we cannot do without. Will you be with me? sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.